We are in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 22 and 23. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible in front of you, page 881. And typically we have a scripture reading uh, first and then a time of reflection, but I'm going to try to move through a lot of text in both of these passages, so I think it'll be easier for me to to read and talk through uh, the sermon instead of having it separated. But what God does is he takes sinners, the worst kinds of sinners, and makes them beautiful. That's happened to me. It's happened to many of you. And my prayer is that we see that this morning. So let's pray together. We're we're coming into a very critical, costly part of the story of your life here on earth. And it's how you make sinners beautiful. And the, the width, the breadth, the height, the depth of your grace extends to, can extend to everyone in this room. Your arm is not too short to save. So would you help us see you and see ourselves here this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. As a proud dad of a ballet dancer, I got the chance to go to many performances over a 15-year period of time. And uh, they were all similar in the sense that there was an end of the year and you, you, you had sort of uh, youngest to oldest little troops come out and do their piece. And then, you know, the, the older they got, the better they got, and the pieces were a little bit longer. But almost all the performances ended the same way with something's called a coda, C-O-D-A. And the coda is when they would bring all the dancers back on the stage for, for this one big performance. So uh, the the real professionals were out there along with the sort of the five-year-olds who you know, really couldn't do anything. And it was so cute. It was so obvious that the the choreographer was uh, considerate that most of the paying audience were parents and grandparents. And so the way they choreographed it is that uh, each group would sort of migrate to the front of the stage just for a few moments, but it was enough for you to get your cameras out and take a picture and then they would fade back out into the background, and this other group would come forward. And it was very brief because you had all the groups together, so you could only have, you know, a few, like 15 or 20 seconds for your child. And you would just sit there, and then when your child came up, you know, you were all ready for them to be up front. In, in our passage today, I want us to think of it as like a coda. We're, we're at the end of Jesus' life on earth, and in this last very dense part in 22, in Luke 22 and 23, uh, God is ushering different characters to the front of the stage to intersect Jesus. So he's standing at center stage, and then Luke writes his gospel in a way that you're supposed to just notice that character after character come up and they have this little brief intersection with Jesus, and then they fade back out into the crowd. And so here we have this coda 
of Luke. And we're not surprised when we see it because Luke, all the way through the gospel, his gospel has been showing sort of character after character. You remember it started with uh, Mary and Joseph and the angels and shepherds. And all the way through his, the, his account, he sort of brings these characters up front and they have an intersection with Jesus and then they fade into the background. But it seems like he's trying to do a coda here where he's trying to cram a lot of people on the stage in a very short amount of time. Why is that? That was the question I was asking. Why, why is he you've got so many people coming up and having this intersection with Jesus in really a short amount of, amount of verses? And I think it's because Luke wants to highlight from the beginning of his Bible, but especially here at the end, these are the kinds of people Jesus came to die for. We know from Luke 5, 27, remember Jesus is with uh, the, the uh, sinners and tax collectors. He's having a meal with them. And remember the Pharisees, you know what they come up and say? I mean, how can he eat with those people? I can't believe. I mean, he should know who those people are. And he says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. I'm not calling any righteous people because they don't think they need to turn around. I'm just here for the sinners. And it's like Luke is saying, here are all kinds of sinners that need to meet Jesus here at the very end. Weak people, self-righteous people, self-serving people, misguided people, murderers, cruel people, criminal people. These all get their their little dance on the stage with Jesus in these last two chapters. And so I, I can't point them all out, but I want to point a few of them out. And here's my challenge to you. Uh, like, like if you were a parent at the ballet, wh- who looks like you? When I bring the character forward, you might say, well, that's, that's, I'm not related to that person. That's okay. We're not all going to relate to every character. But my guess is one or... Maybe more of the characters who say, oh, I recognize. They look like me. I'm like that. Like Dakota, we come and see, we see this cast of characters. In the beginning, the first person we meet is the weak person, Peter. Luke chapter 22, look with me on these verses. 22, 33, and 34, very familiar verses. Sorry, 2233. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded, commanded, demanded to have you that he might sift you, but I've prayed for you. And then Peter says to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, when it will not be the, until the rooster crows this day until you deny me three times. Then verse 54 They seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And a servant girl comes up and looks closely and says, Hey, this man was with Jesus. But Peter denied it. I I don't know this man. Then a little sometime later, hey, you're also with him. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And then an interval about an hour, 
somebody else. Well, certainly this, this man right here, he was with him because he's from Galilee. And Peter says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed in a very haunting voice. Then the Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. I don't want to bust too hard on Peter because this might be the person you look most like. So let's appreciate Peter's desire. Peter desperately wanted to be a strong person. He's the kind of person who believed he would stand alone, he says it, even, even if I have to go to prison, even if I have to die, I'm going to stand. If no one else is here, I'm willing to give my life. He, he wanted to be, he envisioned himself, he, he was, had aspirations of being this kind of person. Peter wanted to be the kind of person Jesus needed, not the kind of person Jesus needed to die for. Let me say that again. Peter wanted to be the kind of person that Jesus needed, not the kind of person Jesus needed to die for. Peter shows flashes of courage. I mean, he pulls out the sword, and he's willing to stand there against a Roman army. He makes his, his way to the courtyard. That, that took some court courage. We don't know of any other disciple who got that close at that time. But when he gets to the priest's courtyard, the veneer of Peter's bravery we find out is very thin and underneath it was a a river of weakness in verse 56 a a servant girl probably 12 or 13 hey weren't you with jesus now on the scale of names to be called or adversities to overcome this doesn't seem like a big one does it i mean a 12 year old girl saying Hey, I recognize you, weren't weren't you with Jesus? Is that the hardest thing you think you're ever going to face in your lifetime? But Peter was weak. And I like how Luke uh, highlights the time between the three denials. Did you notice that? He denies him one time, and then in verse 58, a little while later. And then in verse 59, after the second one, after an interval of an hour. So I'm, I'm thinking this week, what is Peter thinking? I mean, he denies him to this 12-year-old girl, and then he walks away, and he has some space of time, and then he denies him again, and then he has at least an hour to just sit there and think about it, and I'm thinking, what is, what's going through his mind? He has to know or remember, I promised that I wouldn't deny him. I mean, that has to be coming back to him. It has to be coming back to him that Jesus said, you would deny me. And so here's my guess is Peter saying, darn it, that little girl caught me off guard. I'm not going to do that again. And you feel where he's placing all of his hope? I'm not going to do that again. Peter wanted to be the kind of person that Jesus needed, not actually needed to save. Then following the third denial is this haunting verse that maybe they're transporting Jesus from one room to another, but somehow they're making his way, he's making his way through the courtyard, and Peter with a loud voice, I don't know this man, and then turns, and Jesus looks at him. What a look. 
What a look. Peter believed in Jesus. Peter bragged about his ability to follow Jesus. Peter showed signs of courage, yet he failed. Not, not randomly, willingly. Jesus catches Peter's gaze to say, I came to die for people like you, Peter. I don't think there was condemnation in Jesus' look. I think there was recognition. That's why I'm here, Peter, for you. You know, you, you're going to get that gaze one day. You know that? We're all going to get that gaze. And aren't you glad that on the other side of the gaze is a God who's saying, I, I know you and I came to die for you. Rather than, hey, you didn't measure up. Jesus came to die for weak people. Secondly, Jesus came to die for self-righteous people. These are the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. Look with me in chapter 22, verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, the chief priests, the scribes, and they led Jesus to the council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man, this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, and the Son of Man is a divine figure that's going to come and bring judgment to the world. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they all said, so you are the Son of God. And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. The best description of these kinds of people actually come from Matthew or Luke 18. So just turn back here, a familiar passage. Jesus told this parable, and he's telling it to the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes. He's telling it to, he says in verse 9, chapter 18, Righteous people who treated others with contempt. This is the person I'm asking you to say, you recognize this person? Two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, other was, another was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. I'm not like these other sinners, the extortionists, the unjust, the adulterers, even this guy right here, he's in the back, the tax collector. Instead, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, they trusted in themselves. They thought they were righteous. They were religious. They fasted. They gave. They came to church on Sundays. They were particularly skilled when they came to church to notice the sinners in the crowd. Oh, what's he doing here? I saw what he did last week. You know what he posts on his social media account? Mm. Uh, you know who, who he votes for? They're great at that. I mean, they can really identify the people in the crowd very clearly. The problem is they can't identify themselves. The self-righteous 
They use their religion like fig leaves from the Garden of Eden, trying to cover themselves up, believing they're making themselves acceptable to God. It's an old trick. They put themselves in a different category. Does this person look familiar? The self-righteous believe they know how God operates, and they know for sure Jesus cannot be the Messiah. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of man, everybody understands that. We're not very familiar with that passage, but when they, he says it to the Jewish rulers, they know this is the person who's going to judge the world. So what he's saying is, hey, I'm the son of man, and I'm going to judge you. And they turn and judge him and say, hey, he has to be eliminated. One of the greatest problems for the self-righteous is that when they get up in the, in the morning and look in the mirror and they get ready for church, they're unable to recognize themselves. If you ask them if they were, they would say, well, no, I'm not. Some years ago, a man named David Evans. You know who David Evans is? YouTube fans know who David Evans is. He's the famous guitarist that's right next to Bono. Uh, his name is called The Edge. I wish I had a cool name like that. <laughs> well, he's Pastor Paul, but around here we call him The Edge. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? That's not even in my notes. I'm just thinking about that right now. Well, The Edge has a look, in case you don't know the band YouTube. And uh, he has sort of a black beanie, he has a black leather jacket, and he has a guitar kind of slung over his shoulder in a real cool way that you get a name like The Edge. And The Edge one day took his, uh, one Halloween, took his son out for trick-or-treat, and they both decided to dress like The Edge. So, of course, he had his stuff on, and his son had sort of the same thing, the little guitar, the little black hat, the little black coat. And they go to house to house. Imagine this. And as they walk away from one door, they hear a couple say this, that's sad. That poor dad doesn't look anything like The Edge. They're looking at the edge, and they can't see it. That's a self-righteous person. I'm looking at myself, and I can't see it. Who's the leading candidate, would you say, for the most self-righteous person in the Bible? I mean, there's lots of candidates. I'm going to suggest it's the Apostle Paul. And the reason I'm going to suggest that, it comes from Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, where he talks about the confidence that he had in the flesh. I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence, just imagine saying this. If anybody has confidence out here, hey, I have more. I mean, this is a self-righteous person. I see some people out here who are righteous, but I am more righteous is what he's saying. And then he's going to give you a list of his righteousness. I, I was, I've circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I'm a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. Wow. Wow. This is a self-righteous person, and he can't see himself until Jesus helps him. 
And when Jesus helps Paul see himself, he goes on to say, whatever, I had, whatever gain I had, I now can't count it as loss. Indeed, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. See, I had all this confidence, but then I saw myself and realized all this stuff was just rubbish. And I want you to know, if you come to Jesus, you don't come just needing to repent of your sin. You come needing to repent of your self-righteousness. Jesus came to die for the Apostle Paul, for Pastor Paul, who sees himself in this character. You see yourself here? I want you to know Jesus came to die for people like that. Weak people, self-righteous people, self-serving people. Luke chapter 23. I'm going to talk here about Herod and Pilate, and I'm just going to sort of run through the first several verses here. You can kind of follow along. Uh, The Jews have the right to condemn Jesus, but not the right to kill Jesus. So they got to bring him to the Roman authorities because the, author- the Roman authorities are the only ones that have the right to kill Jesus. So they bring him to Pilate and Herod. And Pilate and Herod, think of Pilate like the governor and Herod like the mayor. They're both in charge. Pilate has a little bit more uh, power than Herod does. Herod's is more local. And then Pilate is asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 3, well, you have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I don't find any guilt in this man. But then they said, well, he stirs up the people. And then, they found, then Pilate found out, well, Herod's in town. I'll go bring him to Herod. And so verse uh, 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad. Oh, I've long desired to see Jesus because I heard about him. And I'm hoping to see some sign. I want him to do some miracle. I want him to do some tricks for me. And so Jesus comes to Herod, and Herod gets to question him at length, but Jesus doesn't make any answer to Herod. Pearls before swine, I think. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing Jesus, and Herod, when he doesn't get Jesus to do tricks for him, and his soldiers treated him with contempt, and they mocked Jesus. Then arraign him in splendid clothing. They sent him back to Pilate. Then Pilate, verse 13, he calls the chief priests and the rulers back together and says, Look, you brought me this man who was misleading the people, but I've examined him. I didn't find any charges against him. Neither did Herod. So he sent him back. Look, this man deserves nothing deserving death. Therefore, I'll just punish him and release him. So Herod, Herod is, you know the name Herod. Herod was at Jesus' birth. That's this Herod's father. So it's not the same guy. Herod is like a dynasty. And so this is Herod the junior. And he's the mayor of where Jesus is from, the Galilean area. He had heard about Jesus. He just didn't have an encounter with Jesus. So he's grateful to have this encounter. He's fascinated, but he's not faithful. He would love to see Jesus do a miracle or something spectacular. He definitely wants Jesus to meet his demands. And when Jesus refuses, Herod mocks Jesus. 
And I wonder if you're familiar with this character. Someone interested in Jesus, but only interested in so much as what can he do for me? This look familiar? Oh, I'm fascinated, and I sure hope he can enter my life and make it all better. I'd like to have him clean up my marriage and give me a good career and take care of any health issues and provide money in my bank account. And as long as he's doing all that, man, I am 24-7 Jesus. But then when he doesn't meet your expectations, you turn on Jesus. Hey, he's not going to do what I expect, so I'm not going to have anything to do with him. This kind of person typically is an angry person at God. You meet a person angry at God. God just didn't perform. Pilate's a little more complicated. He's more like a tortured person. You see it through Luke, verse 4, verse 13, verse 22. He's constantly trying to get Jesus off the hook. He, look, I'm, I've examined him. I brought him to Herod. I, he's examining him. He's innocent. I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm willing to sort of beat up on him and let him go, but he hasn't done anything to deserve death. But unfortunately for Pilate, Pilate's belief in Jesus' innocence was more shallow than Pilate's need for power. Look at verse 23, verse, chapter 23, verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified. They're talking to Pilate, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Their voices prevailed. I'm just trying to, I was just trying to imagine Pilate. He's at the coda. For a little while, he's in the back, you know, while the, the chief priest and the, uh, the elders and the scribes are doing their thing. And then suddenly he's up on the center stage. And he's, he gets this one-on-one. It's like the spotlight's on him. And Jesus says, I'm innocent. And he goes, I believe you're innocent. But I can't let you go. Why? crucify him and all the crowds start shouting crucify him and it's like the crowd just swallows up Pilate and he moves back into the crowd he got so close to life but he got swallowed up by the crowd I could not tell you how many times I saw this happen in my ministry with young life you, you would bring a 15 or 16 or 17 year old right to the edge of their seat, seeing Jesus for the first time in a new way. And they would be like, yes, that's true about me. And that's true about Jesus. And I'm ready to follow. And they would get back home or they'd get back into their high school. And what would happen? Oh, the crowd. I couldn't tell you how loud the crowd was. And they just swallow these kids back up because they were just too afraid of what their friends might think or they would lose some position or any kind of thing like that. And I would just see these kids one after another like they would get ushered to the front of the stage with Jesus himself. And I think they would want to go forward, but the crowd, the crowd prevailed. You see yourself here? You're getting your camera out and saying, hey, Paul, this is me. 
I, I really want to follow Jesus, but the crowd, the culture, my wife, my parents, the person at work, my dad, it, the voices are just too big. And they just suck me back in, and I, I miss my chance. I want you to know that Jesus died for these kinds of people. People who feel like they missed a chance. People who feel like the crowd prevails. The fact that Jesus came to die for the worst kinds of people is unmistakable when we turn to Barabbas, chapter 23, verse 18. They all cried away with this man and released to us Barabbas. Very fascinating character. A man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and was a murderer. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus instead of Barabbas, but they kept shouting, crucify Jesus. A third time, he's constantly, "Why? what evil has Jesus done? I've, I haven't found any guilt in him. I'll punish him and release him. But they were urgent. Their crowds, their loud cries prevailed. Verse 25, Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for murder and delivered Jesus over to death. We know so little about Barabbas, but what we do know is he tried to overthrow the government. He was a terrorist kind of figure, and he murdered people. He was thrown into prison, and most likely he was supposed to be on the third cross that Jesus was on. Pilate was desperate to find a way to free Jesus, so he goes back in the law. It's really more of a tradition that says, hey, at the Passover, I'll free somebody. And so you can see him scheming, think, I'll just bring the worst people up, person up here, and they'll never vote for Barabbas. I mean, he's a murderer. This guy's a miracle worker. So who are they going to choose? They're going to choose a miracle worker 100 times out of 100, and they choose Barabbas to be set free. A tragic mistake? No. No. It's a glorious, deliberate, eternal, planned substitution. Jesus took the place of the guilty. His blood, the blood of the Lamb, caused death to pass over Barabbas. Have you seen the movie or read the book? I'm sure you have. The Hunger Games. I like the book. I didn't really love the movie, but you know the plot revolves around this very horrible game where people are in a game and they have to kill each other in order to survive. And most of the contestants are um, randomly selected. And all the contestants are teenagers, 12 to 18. And the hero of the story is Katniss Everdeen. And in her district, her little sister gets chosen, and she knows my little sister doesn't have a chance. So I'll volunteer for her. I'm going to take her place so she doesn't die. It's, it's an extreme act of bravery. It wins you over towards Katniss in the book. It's something we would all aspire to do, but it is understandable. This is your sister. This is your little sister. She, there's no way she's going to make it. But Jesus' substitution doesn't work that way. 
Whose place does Jesus volunteer to take? Murderers. Not innocent little children. Criminal people. Cruel people. Weak people. Self-centered people. Self-righteous people. There are no good people that Jesus came to die for. Because there are no good people. Including myself. We look like Barabbas. Last person, and we'll end here, the criminal or the thief. Luke 22, 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals, we learn from Matthew that they're thieves, were led away to be put to death with Jesus. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. See, this is a, even at the end of his death. Would you perform? But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving our due reward for our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. And said to Jesus, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And I can't imagine how unbelievably sweet these words were. Jesus looked at him and said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You ever thought about this? The first person in paradise is a thief. What was the sin of the first sinner? Theft. I took something that did not belong to me. And the world was leaning in from Genesis 3 till this point and saying, can Jesus save thieves like me who steal? Steal from other people, steal from God and take it for themselves. And the answer is, yes, that's the kind of people who came to die for. These kinds of people. I, I, I don't know, but I imagine the greeter in heaven is the thief. Right? The first person you meet. Hey, I'm the thief. I got in. Can you believe it? Can you, be can you believe it? No, it's really unbelievable. It's not something you would write down unless it was true. This guy gets in. And the great thing about this guy getting in, he's a thief. He's a criminal. Is if he gets in, guess what? I could get in. You could, you could get in. Whether you're a weak person, a self-righteous person, a self-centered person, a murderer, a criminal person, a cruel person, or a thief, that's the kind of people Jesus came to die for. I wonder if you recognize yourself today. Any of these people, you took out your camera and said, yeah, I'm that kind of person. And maybe you wondered... I mean, thieves can get in, but murderers can't get in. Weak people can get in, but self-righteous people can't get in. Everyone can get in at the cross. So have you truly trusted in Jesus for your salvation? Or are you trusting in something else or trying to make your way there yourself? I want you to see with great clarity, Luke wants you to see, up this parade of sinners that are going to look like you and me.
they all get an invitation to come in. Say, say yes to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I see myself in some way, every person who's been on this carousel to center stage. Weak, self-righteous, self-centered, cruel, criminal, thief. And you came because you loved me. You loved people like this. And you wanted death to pass over, not just once for Barabbas, but forever for the thief. So would you help us see ourselves and not be afraid? And then to see the grace of God and say yes. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.